The Tom Woods Show, episode 1395. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, the school year is winding down as I record this, and it's soon going to be time to think about next year's homeschool curriculum. Well, how about getting your mental health back and not running yourself ragged as a homeschooling parent anymore by using the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum? Your children will get a top-notch education in all the standard subjects, plus they'll learn how to start their own home business, how to be an effective public speaker, how to manage their money, the kind of topics that don't get taught anywhere. Plus, get $160 worth of free bonuses when you subscribe to the curriculum through ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. All right, we're talking about a tweet today, but I'm going to take this tweet and make a whole episode out of it, which is not hard to do, by the way, because a lot of times when somebody says something that's not right, the not right statement is one or two sentences long, but a really effective refutation takes half an hour. And that, unfortunately, is the nature of the world we live in, that half the time the truth is kind of complicated and takes a little while to explain. But falsehoods can be fit onto a bumper sticker. So we're up against that. Now, where am I going with this? What topic am I going to be talking to you about today on the basis of a tweet? Well, in order to get to that tweet, I have to tell you something that you may know already. If you listen to Contra Krugman, which of course is the podcast I do every week with Bob Murphy, or if you're on my libertarian email list, either of those outlets, or you follow me on Twitter, you know by now that Paul Krugman acknowledged Bob Murphy and me the other day. It was actually kind of funny because as you know, Bob and I co-host a cruise every year. We've been doing it for four years anyway. It's called the Contra Cruise, ContraCruise.com, and it's kind of a spinoff of our podcast. It's basically a libertarian event at sea for a week every year, and it's a ton of fun. We've told you all about it. Well, Krugman tweeted out about it. He tweeted about the Contra Cruise, and he said uh, – he had this funny tweet, and I reproduced them in my newsletter. He tweets out a graphic taken from the Contra Krugman website – showing a cruise ship and advertising the Contra Cruise. And he says, okay, I've accomplished all that any man can dream of. I'm the king of the world. So he, he's retweeting somebody's image, but then his commentary is, okay, I've accomplished all that any man can dream of. I'm the king of the world. That, of course, there's a, a podcast and a cruise in his honor, so to speak. I mean, obviously, it's, these are, we're critiquing him, so they're, it's not really in his honor, but still, it, it would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it, if you discovered that there was a cruise dedicated to people talking critically about what you've been writing? I mean, that would be something. And then he follows this up with another tweet saying, I just noticed that it's the fourth annual cruise, especially catering to people who hate me. Not only have I achieved something amazing, I have staying power. So I had to respond to that because... We obviously don't hate Krugman, and as I noted on Contra Krugman the other day, that is sadly typical of the left because they they project their own hatreds here. I mean you can see that's classic projection. He hates his enemies. That's, That's clear from his rhetoric. He hates these people. He hates them. So he assumes we must hate him. I don't hate him. Why would I why would I expend energy hating Paul Krugman of all people? Paul Krugman, really? So I tweeted a nice little thing at him. I said, Paul. As one of the two Cruise co-hosts, I can assure you we don't hate you. 
We do disagree with you most of the time, but when you do get it right now and again, we're the first to acknowledge it. See you on board. And then, of course, like a good marketer, I included the link, ContraCruise.com. So it was fun. But some of Krugman's followers didn't find this funny at all. You'll, you'll never believe these people are humorless. How about that? And we got this tweet. Somebody writes, and thinking, you know, he's being funny. Oh, they're libertarians. Now it makes sense. People who believe every man is an island, dot, 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 get on a boat together. Ha, ha, ha. But you know what? I actually thought to myself, that's actually worth elaborating on. Because as you know, we all understand libertarianism pretty well, and we understand progressivism very well. But progressives have the most bizarre, perverse, contrary to fact views of libertarianism you can imagine. And I would bet greater than 90% of them do believe that our general philosophy is every man for himself and every man is an island. And that's so crazily opposed to what we believe that I thought, you know what, doggone it, let's devote an episode to talking about that. I did follow up on that uh, tweet with this person on Twitter, and I said that has nothing to do with libertarianism. And I said, I want you to cite me one libertarian, chapter and verse, saying that every man is an island. And I said, in parentheses, you may not cite Ayn Rand, which is the only name non-libertarians seem to be familiar with. Name me anybody other than Ayn Rand, and I want chapter and verse as to where that's being said. This should be easy. Do you think I heard back from this person? Take a wild guess. So I actually jotted down a few things that I think are kind of important for us all to make sure we, we understand. Now, the easiest way to answer this is simple and yet at the same time not altogether satisfying, but yet I have to at least mention it. And that is, what is libertarianism fundamentally all about? The progressive left thinks it's about selfishness, it's about greed, it's about individualism or whatever. But it's not really about any of those things. It's not even about individualism fundamentally. What it's fundamentally about is non-aggression. That's what it's about. And then individualism follows from that only in the sense that we would not want to use aggression to kind of force you to belong to any grouping that you don't want. But other than that, you don't have to even be an individualist to be a libertarian. I mean, you could be somebody who, let's say, is deeply attached to Scotland and just think of yourself as a Scot and really derive great cultural meaning from that. Well, that's okay. Why would there be anything in libertarianism that would be opposed to that? Uh, you could be uh, very devoted to your local town or to your church or to some, some club or your family or whatever, all of which make you not a radical individualist, and you can still per perfectly well be a libertarian. The point is all we believe in is non-aggression, and then what follows from non-aggression helps you to know what libertarians believe on specific issues. But the big picture is non-aggression. So claiming that every man is an island has nothing to do with non-aggression. That's just some adjunct, uh, that's just some external afterthought that somebody is trying to add on to libertarianism. But it is no part of our philosophy. It's just no aggression. You can have all kinds of wonderful social goals and good luck to you in pursuing them. The, the one constraint on you under libertarianism is you can't use violence to accomplish them. But, I mean, surely that's not that much to ask, right? You have a noble goal. 
Go out there and work hard toward it, but just don't don't use violence. Is that really, are we really being antisocial by putting that? In fact, I think that is, that's the definition of what social is, you know, is when human beings interact with each other in a spontaneously friendly way and in a way that's voluntary on both sides. So everybody feels like he's getting something that he wants. And that's what voluntary interactions are all about. And what we're also doing by refusing to use violence is we're treating other people not as means to an end, but as ends in themselves. I can't just use you as a means to accomplishing one of my ends. I can get your consent to help me accomplish my end, but you are an end in yourself. You're not just, I can't just selfishly treat you as a means to my end. I was, I was about to say, what kind of person acts like that? Well, 99% of mankind acts like that because most people are not libertarians. But I mean, how many people, if they really, really understood what they were doing there, that you are treating other people as means to your ends when other people are ends in themselves? I think when you get that insight, it, if you really grasp what that means, it has to affect the way you look at the world and the way you act in the world. But let's leave that behind us because that's the easy way out is just to say, well, all we really believe in here is non-aggression and anything else is secondary to that. And we nowhere say every man is an island. We nowhere say it's every man for himself. That is, has nothing to do with libertarianism. You can believe that if you want to, I suppose, but there's nothing connected to libertarianism that says you have to believe that. But what's most crazy about this is that what do we talk about all the time, especially those of us in the Austrian tradition where we talk a lot about the significance of the division of labor and the international division of labor, by which I mean, by the way, if you've, if you've heard this term and not really fully gotten what it's all about, we're not really generally talking about the division of labor of the kind that Adam Smith spent most of his time talking about, which was the specialization of tasks within a particular factory, for instance where I'm going to do, I'm going to play this role in the production process and you're going to play that role, but rather the division of labor throughout the entire society where people and firms specialize in the production of particular goods and services. And by specializing, we maximize output basically, you know, as opposed to if every one of us was a subsistence farmer, okay, we're not really maximizing what we would all be able to produce if only a few people farmed and, and the rest of the people specialized in the production of other sorts of goods. So we're constantly talking about the international division of labor, this division of labor and specialization that spans the entire globe and that makes possible the structure of production that yields us this cornucopia of consumer goods. We're constantly expressing wonder at it. How would the division of labor be possible if we viewed society as a matter of every man is an island. That's the exact opposite. Is we want to link all the islands of the world in the international division of labor. <laughs> the idea that we would want every man to be an island, what would that mean? Every man, every man is engaged in autarky? This is the opposite of what we want. I mean, remember the whole eye pencil thing where in order to build a pencil or to create a pencil, there are so many steps that you need to know if you were really going to build that whole pencil from scratch. That is, you were going to get the wood and the paint and the rubber and the metal and all that. Well, what would you have to know? I mean, well, first of all, even to get the wood, you'd need to 
you would need to be involved in mining because you'd have to because you need to ultimately to produce a saw, you're going to need steel. And so that has its own production process associated with that. And then the paint and the rubber and the graphite and these things are are sometimes geographically remote. Each one of them has a production process uh, that's very technical um, that people specialize in. But there's no one person who has mastered all those things. And we don't need that. That's not necessary. Thanks to the price system, firms and individuals all over the world just spontaneously produce the inputs, the intermediate goods that go into producing pencils for consumer use. And that is a massive example of human cooperation across countries, language and cultural barriers of all kinds. Nevertheless, there is a massive cooperation going on. And for the production of most things, there are multiple stages of production. There's research and development just to look into the, the way you would produce the product. And then there is uh, the extraction of, uh, you know, let's say in, in mining of, of raw materials. And then you just go down the list. I mean, sometimes it involves cultivation of land. It could involve harvesting. It could involve assembling things on an assembly line with a bunch of selling a bunch of intermediate products together on an assembly line. Then you have a wholesaler, you got marketing, you got to transport the stuff to the retail store. And then finally, when it's on the retail store shelf, it's at the stage where a consumer can grab it and buy it. And in that process, nobody at any stage wants the firms producing the good immediately above them, let's say, in that process simply to disappear, or the firm in the stage below them that's going to buy their finished stuff to put together to create their stuff. They don't want those companies to disappear either because either you lose your supplier or you lose the people buying the stuff you produce. Everybody wants these other stages to stay running and, and be successful they, they, so that they can continue their fruitful cooperation basically. This stage gives me their output and we transform it in some way and then we hand it down to the next uh, firm to transform it further or to sell it or whatever. Well, we want this process to continue. We don't want to have to suddenly look for brand new suppliers and we don't want to be sitting here on a whole lot of inventory that we can't sell because the stage of production below us uh, suddenly disappeared. So it's not the case that we, we're just sitting there selfishly uh, or just thinking of ourselves as isolated individuals. No, the process of producing things involves many firms and many individuals uh, cooperating to produce the finished product. Well, I think one of the great illustrations of this is, and I'll, I'll put a link to the article about this at tomwoods.com slash, um, what is this, 1395. I think I told this story, but it was a long time ago. I read this really, really interesting article about a fellow back in 2008 who decided he wanted to build a toaster from scratch. Now, that doesn't mean he wanted to go to the hardware store and find the raw materials he would need and then just somehow mush them together because that even that isn't really from scratch because the local hardware store already did the work, or at least they found the people who did the work and they put the stuff on the shelves. He wanted to go back really to the beginning of the process of producing a toaster. And he found himself going all over the place to get all the different things that he would need. So the first thing he does, he buys a toaster and he opens it up just to get a sense of what he's up against. What 
really does a toaster consist of? And he finds there are 400 parts, just of a toaster, consisting of 100, over 100 different materials. So if he were to try to find all of those 100 plus materials, the project would have consumed his entire life. So he began to make compromises. And it turns out he has to make a bunch of compromises. Even to just make one toaster, he realizes he just, he's got to scale back his ambitions. So he decides that he's going to just focus on five materials, steel, mica, plastic, copper, and nickel. And none of these things come from the ground ready to assemble into a toaster. There's work involved. So the article goes through and talks about uh, the process of getting iron and then copper and you know where, where would you find copper reserves and all th- this and that. It's just a, a fantastic and fascinating story. So then he, he, this takes him months and months and months and months of work. He's finally produced a toaster. He plugs it in, and after about five seconds, the toaster starts melting, and that's, that's it. So that's what happens when you try to be an island, okay? And this is why we libertarians and Austrians in particular, why we would laugh at this man. We wouldn't say, oh, he's the best libertarian who ever lived. He's building a toaster all by himself. We'd say, no, 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 our our whole philosophy centers around the value of human cooperation, non-coerced interactions. And the division of labor is the best example of that. And he, obviously just to satisfy his curiosity, not, not out of uh, being a misanthrope, decided to try to do it all on his own. We're not cheering him, saying, oh my gosh, you're better than Murray Rothbard and, and Ludwig von Mises combined because you tried to build a, a toaster all by yourself. So that goes to show <laughs> what happens when you do try to live that way. And that's precisely why we don't advocate that. We advocate the exact opposite. And incidentally, this case of the toaster Reminds me of a point I made a few weeks ago on this show where I was trying to make the point that we all benefit, and George Reisman makes this point a lot, we all benefit from the capital goods that are owned by private firms. We all benefit from this. It's not just those firms that benefit. We benefit in the form of the products that those goods can produce for us. And none of us could afford to buy these capital goods So thankfully, somebody else plunked down the money for them, and we benefit from the output. But I expanded on that, and I said, I think some people don't want to appreciate what commerce and what business makes available to them because they think, well, I still have to pay for it. I'm not getting the stuff for free. You know, I don't get, uh, let's say, free candy bars or free shoes or anything. So it's, you know, it's not really, or I don't get free video games. So, you know, what's the, or, you know, whatever, free tools, whatever. I have to pay for all these things. So why should I be grateful to, you know, to businesses for investing in capital or whatever? I still have to pay for the stuff. But what I, the point I was making is, yeah, you have to pay for it. But when you consider what it would cost you to make those things that you're buying, the number of dollars is so astronomical that the amount that you're paying that firm might as well be zero. It would round off to zero. You basically are getting it for free. I mean, think of, look at what this guy had to go through to produce one toaster, and then it only lasts for five seconds anyway after nine months of effort. And and even then, he cut a million corners because he realized it really would be 
literally impossible to make this toaster all on his own. So he had to cut corners, and even then, it took him nine months, and even then, it lasted five seconds, where meanwhile, you can go down to the store and get a toaster for 10 bucks. Okay, what's the opportunity cost of nine months of work, right? And all the expense involved, I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. $10 might as well be zero. That's the point. $10 might as well be zero compared to what it would cost you to make those things. So go through a day where you're aware and alert uh, about your surroundings and, and say to yourself, okay, this thing I just bought, you know, what if I had to grow the coffee beans myself? You know, you just think about all, the whole process. It would just be astronomical. It would be impossible. But instead, you have to pay what is basically pennies. It's nothingness compared to the expense you would have to endure. Somebody else has has paid that expense. Somebody else invested in that capital equipment and invested their time in it and integrated themselves into the division of labor. And the result is this amazing cornucopia of goods for which we may as well be paying zero. And this is all possible precisely because we don't have a social philosophy that says every man is an island. It's precisely because we don't believe that that we have this amazing result that we cheer. Let's think of another uh, point. Before you get a really developed division of labor economy, most people are subsistence farmers. And so everybody's doing more or less the same kind of labor across the whole society. And uh, another point that I recall Reisman making is, this means that great geniuses are also spending their time in subsistence farming. Now, there's nothing wrong with subsistence farming. There's nothing wrong with farming. Obviously, we need that. I'm glad people are doing that. But I wouldn't be glad that every single person in the world was doing that. I wouldn't want Steve Jobs to have been doing that. That'd be a waste of his talents, right? People who are really good at that should do that. But he should do something else where he can serve the general public. So Reisman's point is that before the division of labor is really extended, the geniuses, the the mental uh, abilities of geniuses go completely to waste. And nobody benefits from them. And again, what is the division of labor if not extended cooperation? When you have that, it becomes possible for the genius to find his place in that division of labor. He's no longer basically forced by scarcity to be doing subsistence farming. He's now liberated to go and find some way where he can serve his fellow man effectively. And by putting his genius to good use, inventing something amazing or revolutionizing the production process of something or revolutionizing communications or transportation, things that will improve the standard of living of a great many people. Now he can finally put these things to use. And so we're glad. We don't want him to be an island. Before, he was an island. And when he was an island, all his talents were completely going to waste. And so we cheer that that's not the case anymore that the capitalist division of labor has found a place for him, the best place it can find, where he can put those smarts to the best, most value-productive use. Or think about this. I happen to be a big Broadway aficionado. And just last week, I took a few of my daughters up to New York. New York's like my home away from home. I get up there a lot. And yeah, I know it's a mess politically, but if you're going to let that stop you from enjoying your life, then the terrorists have won. And so I go up there and I like to visit friends and, and see some shows. So we were seeing a show that was extremely elaborate. You can, 
barely imagine the effort that went into the sets and the costumes and the choreography and the special effects and everything, plus the advertising, the marketing. Oh my gosh, what? And, and yet for us, it was two and a half hours of just pure delight, pure delight. And I was reminded of the point that Adam Smith makes about the division of labor. Adam, one of the things Adam Smith is best known for is the statement, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. The division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. Now, what does that mean? Well, suppose we lived in a um, subsistence farming kind of society, and we are very, very spread out. We have no population density, or very low, that is to say, very low population density. Would it make financial sense for somebody to pour the seed capital into a Broadway play when they're just there aren't enough people around, there aren't enough people with money around, you wouldn't be able to get enough people in the building to make the thing pay. There isn't enough of a market for it. And so the division of labor cannot extend into entertainment as far as it would otherwise. But as the market grows, as, uh, you know, as, as you build cities or as tariff barriers come down and now you can cater to more people than ever. Now the market is growing, the division of labor can grow even further. So when you think about these really niche hobbies that some people have, well, the only way they could have those hobbies is if you have enough people to make it worth the while for the companies who produce the goods associated with those hobbies to produce them. I'm not kidding you. When I was sitting in one of those Broadway theaters last week, I actually was thinking to myself, I'm glad the extent of the market is such that the division of labor is able to operate here and that we're able to have people who specialize in lighting inside a Broadway theater. That wouldn't have been possible in a pre-division of labor society. There would not have been enough of a market for there to be, uh, there wouldn't have been enough need for, for that kind of service for anybody to be able to make a full-time living as a lighting coordinator in a theater. But now the market has developed. For, so in other words, basically the more people I have who share the interests I have, the more those interests will be catered to and the happier I'll be. So notice again, that's the opposite of saying every man is an island. No, no, no. If every man was an island, I wouldn't get, I wouldn't see the development of any of the things that give me pleasure in this world. None of those things would be developed because there'd be no market for them. I want there to be a whole bunch of us together enjoying all these wonderful things because then we help facilitate the extension of the division of labor and the provision of, of more and more things that cater to our particular interests. All right, a few more uh, quick things. Poverty has been reduced spectacularly thanks to capitalism, uh, which is the economic reflection of libertarianism. And that just seems weird, right? If we believe that every man is an island, how do we manage to get poverty to come down uh, so dramatically? And as I noted in an episode last week, and, and, and here I was just going on a, a very good video by Johann Norberg, who's been a guest on this show before, where he goes through and shows that the, the countries where poverty has really come down dramatically are countries that really did not have a welfare state. They were too poor to have them. And that the rich countries today, when did they really conquer poverty? Was it during the years of their mature welfare states? No, it was long before they had mature welfare states. So somehow, uh, the market economy 
did this. Now, it's not a mystery to us. If you listen to this show, you know how it works. But the point is, even if a philosophy that he thinks amounts to every man is an island, well, somehow it yielded to a lot of human beings uh, living much, much better lives than before, which is not what you would expect out of a social philosophy that allegedly just thinks of every man for himself. I would also point out that the amount of money that Americans donate to international charities is double the amount of money that the U.S. government gives out in humanitarian aid around the world. So the actual American population gives twice as much money. Ron Paul mentions this in uh, the Revolution book. So I point that out just to show that isn't it interesting that on a voluntary basis, it's the case that people actually voluntarily give twice as much as the government coercively takes from them for the same purpose. That's just an interesting sort of point. But But with regard to the idea of us each being an island, if anything, the welfare state has encouraged that because there's, you know, there's, if you look at trends in charitable giving in the 1960s, when people are hearing all about the great society and the government's going to conquer poverty, well, charitable giving goes down substantially. But in the 1980s, when people falsely, as it turns out, were told that the government is cutting back, at least they thought the government was cutting back, it was maybe slowing the rate of growth, but it wasn't really cutting back. Nevertheless, people responded. Charitable giving started to go way up. And this is supposedly the decade of greed. Oh, yeah, the decade of greed, the decade where charitable giving goes through the roof. Yeah, right. Nice try. But that's an interesting point. And it's partly because people think, well, the government's already taken care of it, so I don't really need to go help anybody. That's every man as an island. Yeah, that guy over there needs some help, but I don't know. He'll probably get some check in the mail or something. I don't know. I don't need to go do anything about that. Yeah, if you want to make every man an island, do that. If you want to wreck civil society and make all its good features atrophy because some dull bureaucrat is going to try to substitute for it, yeah, take that approach and you will get every man being an island. In fact, in his, uh, uh, let's see, was it Caritas in Veritate? It's a 2009 encyclical by Pope Benedict XVI said something like this. He said, the state which would provide everything absorbing everything into itself, would ultimately become a mere bureaucracy, incapable of guaranteeing the very thing which the suffering person, every person, needs, namely loving personal concern. Ah, interesting point, that there's more to helping somebody than mailing that person a check. Yeah, maybe you have to go interact with them on a, wait for it, voluntary basis, which is precisely what libertarians have always said. And Benedict continues, we are dealing with human beings and human beings always need something more than technically proper care. They need humanity. They need heartfelt concern. All right, well, that, that's what society is supposed to be for. And that's what libertarians believe in. Not just, uh, oh yeah, I, some money was taken out of my paycheck, but that doesn't matter to me. You know, whatever, I'm sure they'll solve all our problems. I'm just gonna sit here. Is that really the best kind of life? Is that really the best way we should interact with each other in society? Really? Because it seems to me like that is every man's an island. All right, folks, that's going to do it for today. That is our episode. But a couple things I want to tell you. I have another ebook coming probably in the next two to three weeks. Oh, this one is going to knock your socks off. Oh, man. Won't cost you a thing, but this is just the ebook. 
that these times call for. I'll put it that way. I'm going to be speaking, I'm keynoting, actually, the uh, State Convention of the Libertarian Party of Florida. You don't have to be a member of the Libertarian Party of Florida or otherwise to attend the talks. And Walter Block's going to be there. Jeff Dice going to be there. Uh, a lot of great folks. Uh, Jacob Hornberger, it turns out, I believe, is going to be stopping by. I don't know if he's speaking, but it's going to be a great event. You can check out the details at tomwoods.com slash events. And of course, if you like and appreciate what I'm doing over here, then come on over to supportinglisteners.com. Become a supporting listener. You get a lot of super-duper benefits, not least of which is membership in the Tom Woods Show Elite, which is the best community in the world. You belong in it. So check it out at supportinglisteners.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.